0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Today's episode is the final part of a three-parter conversation with Professor Dale B. Martin. If you want to check out the first two episodes, in the first one, Paul and the Resurrection, we discussed the earliest Christian documents, the writings of Paul. In the second episode, From Christ to Constantine, we discussed the growth of early Christianity and. Many of the theories to account for that. In today's episode, which, as you'll hear, was something I didn't really plan on covering, but we just ended up talking about anyway, we talk about our own personal beliefs. Dale Martin talks about his Christianity, and I talk about my atheism. And we discuss, in general, the study of religion and the study of the ancient world. So, as you'll hear, This was intended as a final question and became a further 50-minute discussion. I hope you enjoy it. If you want the context to this conversation, you're more than welcome to go back and check out the two previous episodes. If you don't care too much for context, or maybe just don't trust us to deliver it and we wouldn't blame you, then you're more than welcome to just jump in here for the final episode with Dale Martin, Postmodern Christianity. And I'm not going to do any introductions, we're just going to jump straight in. Like I say, if you want the context, you're more than welcome to start the series at the beginning. For today, for a third and final time, it is my pleasure to once again bring you Professor Dale B. Martin. final question. You've been very generous with your time, but whenever I get someone really interesting on, I always want to be like, and what about this? And what about this? Final, final, final question. Is... I'm not Christian, so it's maybe not for me to answer this, but it does seem to me like there is a challenge posed by the figure of Paul to, to orthodox christian belief which is just that he so clearly invented so much of it so i believe in thessalonians right first thessalonians and i'm really trying hard not to be like the atheist nitpicker here but the dude invents the afterlife there's just this moment where he tells them oh and all these people you've lost who have died don't worry they're coming back in a way that's clearly new information to them yeah. so how do you what's
1: amazing is that paul must have Paul converted these Gentiles to be a part of his movement without telling
0: them anything yeah.
1: about an afterlife,
0: and it clearly wasn't part of their belief system before. No,
1: they they, must, they thought that what he was offering them was salvation from the coming wrath of God. Right, that's what he was offering. Everybody, everybody who wasn't in the movement was going to be struck down in some right. way, and they were going to escape the wrath by being this movement, and then they'd have a big party. You know, Jesus would come back on the clouds. They would all because they know all this part. And then they, then they would all you know, fly up to heaven and come down, and then they have a big party. But what's after that? Right. They obviously didn't know. So when not But that's nothing thing about Paul He didn't invent that stuff out of whole cloth. For, remember, I, he's an apocalyptic Jew, so he's already inherited a whole bunch of teaching about resurrection and bodies and all this kind of stuff, and heaven and hell. and So he's got all that in the back of his mind. But he didn't feel like that was important to teach them the first time around. Mm. So you can't say— When they converted, what did they convert to? And that's really hard for us modern people to get because almost everybody, whether they're Christian or not, they kind of – they have this supposition that what is salvation in religion? Oh, it's living forever or it's life after death or it's immortality of the soul or something like that. Well, that was not part of Paul's message at all. So then when they say, oh, no, these people have died. They're not going to be able to join the party. Then he says, oh, I forgot to tell you. Yeah. (laughs) there's <laughs> this whole resurrection thing going on,
0: but then it, it it seems like to be a serious Christian, you just have to go hard postmodernist and say there is th- the theology of resurrection and salvation which we're committing to, on a on a separate basis because the the historical origins of it are, are kind of fascinating but weird. And it, how do you how do you square that circle?
1: Well now you have to read my most recent book. <laughs> <laughs> this is a book plug. Okay, well, truths, the knows the truths is plural biblical truths, I didn't give it this title, I, I, my title for it was in a sense, because I say everything that you believe theologically, mm-hmm. it may be true in a sense, but it's also false in a sense. And if you're going to be a mature theologian, and not just a believer, but a mature theologian, which you think critically about your beliefs and your confessions. You have to learn how to see the truth and the falsity in everything you confess. So biblical truths is what the marketing people, and then they gave this terrible subtitle, the the meaning of scripture in the 21st century, Hmm. which of course I never would have claimed that for myself at all. I don't believe there's the meaning of scripture, and I would not claim to speak for the whole 21st century, but that's the title of it. And that's the whole point of the book is, and in fact, my very first introduction to the book, I say this is a postmodern, anti-foundationalist, orthodox, Marxist, provisional the- theological interpretation of the New
0: Testament. But you, uh, okay, I'm going to resist the urge to be a nitpicky atheist here and say the only way out is like hardcore postmodernism. I,
1: that's the only way I've been able to remain a Christian.
0: To just, they're different sets of truths and epistemologies, and these are just different circles that don't overlap.
1: Yeah. But it seems to me, see, these are obvious truths. And I try to illustrate it in my book with a lot of different things. The first chapter, besides the introduction, just says what this book is going to do. Then the first main chapter is epistemology. It's just called knowledge, but it's basically what is knowledge? Mm. And I try to illustrate that, you know, there's nothing you can say that's true in every sense. So, 2 plus 2 equals 4, Eh. well, that's universally true. No, it's not.
0: I'm making a sort of eh eh noise at that. Uh 2 plus 2 equals 4 isn't universally true. No, it's only true if you're in the realm
1: of arithmetic. So, for example, mathematicians will point out that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is true if you're working with an integer system that is at least 4. See, we, work, we normally work with an integer system that is, you can call it nine or 10, according to okay. when you say the numbers turn around. So we go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then we go one, zero.
0: Oh, right, sure. But we, that's just like what your base counting system is. But there's a more fundamental. I'm
1: saying two plus two equals four is only true if you're taking it as an arithmetic, arithmetic statement of truth and in an integer system that is a base counting system of four or more.
0: But no, no, you don't need – okay, I don't know why I'm going down this hole. Um, but you don't need to do that because all you need to grant is logical discreteness the idea that one thing can be separate from another thing. And then from that, you can get that that set of two things can be separate from a set of another two things. I think that's more prior than accounting system. This there's, is
1: – There's there's a million ways to argue it. I'm yes. just saying that a state any statement on the bare knuckles statement hmm. can't be either true or false until you interpret it in order to interpret it, you have to put it in some kind of context of rationality. So and do all context of rationality aren't the same.
0: Do you think of your... I think you identify as like a fairly serious postmodernist, right? A what? A postmodernist. Is that yes. how you think about how you think? Yes. What do you make of the fact, though, that most... It seems like most religious people don't think of their faith that way. They think of it as, as a more direct and unified truth claim.
1: Yes, and what I'm, the reason I wrote this book is to try to show them why they're wrong, mm-hmm. um, and that if they continue thinking that way, they probably will become atheists or agnostics.
0: Amen to that.
1: <laughs> and, and as I say, so I wrote the book not to try to make people Christians, but to say, why is it that, after, that at the age of 63, after knowing, believing in science, believing in history, being a critical historian, mm. I still find myself going to church and saying these creeds? Mm. So I still believe them in some sense but what sense do I believe them in? And I wrote the book to try to explain that, and to say, you know, I'm not saying you ought to believe these things. Mm. I'm trying to explain how can a person be rational and still believe these things that are true in a sense, even if they're not true in another sense. That's what the whole book is trying to do. And I don't think you can do that in a modernist sense.
0: You, you would own the statement pretty readily then that they're not true in a historical sense.
1: Jesus did not descend into hell in a physical, physicist, modern physicist sense.
0: Right.
1: But the Apostles' Creed says Jesus descended into hell. And very rational, smart people get up and say it every morning at morning prayer if they're Anglicans.
0: Right.
1: Now, if they're smart, and they're educated, and they're rational, and they're willing to say, I believe Jesus descended into hell— what are they doing when they say that, if they don't believe it in a physicist's sense?
0: It sounds then you're almost like offering a psychological explanation of that divergence. Like, what what's going on in their mind?
1: You can call it psychological. I just prefer to call it straightforward epistemology. This is philosophical epistemology.
0: There is a final question of how does the atheist square that circle, which I've—because, like— What I've said throughout is I've argued that these ideas actually shape the way all of us think now. We all have some notion of freedom running in our brain, and that's in large part because it's survived in Christianity at least mm-hmm. that's my reading of history. Mm-hmm. So there's a challenge to the religious person, which frankly, I don't, I'll, I'll read your book, but I frankly don't see a way out of that I find intellectually compelling, which is how do you believe something you know isn't historically true? But then there's also a challenge to the atheist if we don't, if we don't want to be a nihilist, if we want to be a moral person, which is the very values that we use, the concepts and categories we use to describe social reality are a result of us being situated in a particular historical place and are a result of a religious tradition leading up to that. So if we were to say something like we want to be free from religion, we can only do that by invoking categories and concepts that come to us from religion. And that's another contradiction I haven't really thought my way out of.
1: Yeah. See, the thing is that a lot of people will not accept my account of this because I'm very much influenced by certain kinds of – in fact – four of them are british either irish or british uh, uk um roman catholics philosophers they're all very super influenced by thomas aquinas but they're also Wittgensteinian ordinary language philosophers and when it comes down to it they will say you know really when it comes right down to it what i mean by faith is that i believe there's a reason that there's something rather than nothing why is there something rather than nothing and for the kind of postmodernist um, negative theology kind of theology that I am I, I sat with him I just say I believe that there is something rather than nothing and I believe that there's meaning in the universe I don't experience the universe as meaningless and I just happen to use the word God mm. to fill in that space
0: but that's a very That's a very big diaphanous idea of God that, I mean, you can sort of get into that and I could sort of say, you know, I could sort of say, but, you know, on what basis other than that you sort of want to feel that way, do you say that it had to, that there had to be a reason for it existing? And we could really just ask that question, but even accepting that, that's a very different idea of God than most religious people have most of the time they're thinking of a being they're thinking of an intervening force in the world that has a character almost like a person
1: and that's why there are people like me (laughs) that's idolatry you're actually you're so misunderstanding the best traditions of christianity and i'm not new in saying this this is Mm. what thomas aquinas believed this is what augustine of hippo believed this was a uh, a dionysius the areopagite was Mm. a pseudonym for somebody who wrote around the year you know 500 but the whole tradition of negative theology or apothetic theology is that nothing you say about God can be true. Nothing you say about God can be true ultimately. And so you have to just get that to your head. God is not a being. God is the reason there is being. Um, one of these philosophers says, a lot of very good theologians just can't get it through their heads when Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or other great theologians and philosophers in Christian history has said, God is not a part of the universe, nor is God outside the universe. God plus the universe do not make two. That's the problem with most, and you're right. That's where most people think about it. But people who believe are believers and people who reject belief, they're still thinking about God in a way that, the best theologians of Christian tradition have said is idolatrous.
0: But when we, on on my side of the aisle, critique Christianity, people almost sort of want to deny that and say, well, no, 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 you're you're taking a far too literal approach. And I think what we say is we're just taking most believers at their word most of the time. I'm not
1: at all saying most believers uh, are exactly as you describe them but i'm just saying that says nothing about christianity in my understanding of christianity that's why i write books like this to say you know philosophy can help history can help science can help and if you want to be a thinking believer in this age and time you would do well to educate yourself in some of those things
0: but there's there's in no fact,
1: that's what theology is theology is not statements of truth Theology is basically trying to say, how does it make sense to say, I believe? And then you're, you're try- your attempt to explain that is what theology is. But then, and explain it not just to other people, but to explain it to yourself.
0: But there's still a starting point that you can't get to by reason alone from the outside, which is you have to start by saying, I believe.
1: And no, then- you don't make a decision to start. This is the thing that most of us just find ourselves believing mm. before we become critical about it. So I, I, say, I say, in my book, I say, I, when some people say, well, why do you believe, or are you a person of faith? And I say, well, I'll give, you two, I'll give you two explanations, and I think they're both true, and you can decide which one you want to accept. First, there's the easy sociological explanation. I was socialized to believe. Hmm. I was taken to church. I came from parents and family that all uh, were faithful people and found it important to pray and to sing songs and to worship God. I just socialized from before I can hmm. remember. So it just seems natural to me. That's the sociological. I've been just socialized to have faith.
0: And I could say the same thing about why I don't, presumably. Exactly. Right? There's some sort of story I, I could tell I that. That's a
1: true, that's, I do think that's a true account. And mm. I say, now let me play the theological game. And now I'm getting into Paul's world. Mm. Why do I have faith? Because God gave me the grace to have faith. God decided, Dale Martin, you're going to have faith. I give you the gift of belief. That's the... Th- correct theological explanation, is that some people are given by God a gift of faith. And all I can do is say, thank you, it makes my life more meaningful. Paul calls uh, faith a gift, definitely. It's a charisma. So, and, and you can't take credit for your own faith in Paul's theology. Even your faith is given by God.
0: Does that... uh, Why am I keeping asking? You're you too interesting, Professor Martin. You are too interesting. (laughs) You make make me ask you questions. But then... But, but, but... Sorry, I I, I went into this thinking I'm not going to be a nitpicky atheist, and by the end I'm being a nitpicky atheist. But if faith is a gift, does that not completely cut the legs under from evangelism?
1: Well, I think it does mean that that's... For people like me, and for a whole lot of people in the Episcopal Church, Mm. just where I, what I'm in, we're not all that keen to do evangelizing. Or if we, but we basically say, we basically say I don't need, I don't believe in hell. So I don't believe you're going to go to hell. So I don't have any reason to want to persuade you to be a believer. Cause I loved you and I want to save you from hell.
0: Huh.
1: My theology can't admit the whole traditional category of hell as a place that God created to give people eternal conscious punishment and pain. That could not work out with a God of love, period. So, and I'm not alone in that. There's whole tons of people who believe that. But I may indeed, when, I, when we think of evangelism, we basically say, we think it's perfectly okay for us to share what we find valuable mm. about Christianity. I'm perfectly willing to talk about that. Now, yeah. if that's evangelism, fine, but I'm not, I'm not out necessarily. That's the other thing I say in the introduction of my book is that I'm not saying any of this to try to convert people.
0: Because if we do accept the faith as a gift narrative, again, that's one, that's not how most Christians most of the time seem to see it. Um, But two, at very best, that's an explanation that you could give me as to why you believe. It's not really an explanation, I think, that could be particularly compelling for why I should. And then there's a lot of stuff you could say about the benefits of your faith that I think I could just say... I don't need to either take the label Christian or any specific doctrinal beliefs in order to have. So certainly there's elements of community and ritual and meaning that I think if we are going to be secular in a serious way, not just a nitpicking these are the false claims of Christianity way. We do need to find ways to replicate them. Clearly human beings have need for those things and clearly we have need for meaning and I talk about this a bit on the podcast. I do feel like there is a sort of generation growing up now that even though they're materially more affluent does feel a lack of meaning in some profound sense and I don't know what the answer to that is and I think that void is being filled by all sorts of political demagoguery and just stupidity and vacuousness. So I don't know what the answer is there. But I feel like if you talk to me about the benefits of faith, I'm not sure that there's anything that's n- necessary for me to to say I believe in the resurrection or anything specific like that in order to have those benefits. And if you just say well my belief then is a gift of God in those senses, then I guess we just have to say, well, fair enough. I mean, I'm happy with the old liberal compromise of you lead your life and I lead mine, and that's always been completely fine to me. But it isn't a reason you could offer... It, 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 it the door's only open from the inside there, then that's not something you could give anyone else as a reason. It would only be an explanation of your own perspective.
1: Yes, that's true. But see, the thing is, you're still thinking about a popular view of Christianity that I'm saying, um, is not the best view of Christianity. It's not the way, the best way Christianity has even thought of itself because, um, my reasons for having faith, I have no interest in pushing them off on other people. It's just, in fact, I I talk about in my book, how that Christians, I believe, and I'm, this is, I think very much from my study of Paul, um, we definitely should not even try to evangelize Jews. We, sh- we cannot make Jews Christians because in Paul's theology, Gentiles are only part of Israel because Jews already exist as Jews. So we don't want to annihilate Israel. We have to have Israel to be the root for Gentiles like me to be able to claim to be a part of the branch. So evangelizing Jews is definitely, you know, out. And there's a lot of Christians who believe that. And I would even say the same thing. i just say, well, you know, if people, if people don't find meaning in this system of meaning, then I don't. That's fine. I don't, I don't need to convert people either because I'm afraid they're going to go to hell because I don't or because I need their approval to remain in the church. I just don't.
0: There is a weird experience with hell as from someone who also doesn't believe in it of you regularly, I live in New York City, get greeted by people handing you leaflets about hell and warning me about this. And there's two reactions you can have. One is to go, well, you're just a ridiculous person and I'm not taking you seriously. But then if you actually engage with the ideas, what they're telling you is deeply insulting and kind of like hurtful in a sense is I can say look you're approaching me who you don't know a stranger and you're telling me I am you you have never met that I am such a morally deprived human being that a good and wise and just being the only fate they could see for me would be to be tortured for all time until the end of time and and that's what you feel like, it it gets worse if you seriously engage with it, right?
1: Yeah.
0: But but what percentage of Christians don't believe in hell? It has to be fairly low.
1: No, I think it's actually fairly high. Mm. Um, They might not tell you that. Mm. My father, about 10 or 15 years ago now, was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Uh, just... Uh, prostate cancer. And so they operated, thought they got it. Several months after that, cancer showed up in his bone in his hip. Hmm. Now, this was back when having cancer in your bone was almost a sure death sentence. Um, It's gotten a lot better in the last 10 years. But so I was talking to him on the we all thought he was going to die, including his doctor. He didn't he's still alive, kind of losing his memory, unfortunately, right now But Hmm. he's still alive at 87. And I was on the phone to him one time and I said, dad, um, are you afraid of death? Now notice he goes to the same fundamentalist kind of church that I grew up in. The he and mom still go to the same church. It's not nearly as fundamentalist now. They've kind of themselves actually opened up. My parents are very liberal and progressive. For example, they're politically way to the left and, and they're also, you know, they, they go to the church because it's the church they grew up in. This is where their friends are. It's comfortable, you know, but, it was a, when I was there, it was a very fundamentalist church that, you know, very definitely believed in hell and very individualistic consciousness. Hmm. So I said to dad, is it dead? Um, do you, do you believe there's anything on the other side? And he said, uh, no, nah, I probably not. <laughs> I said, are you afraid of death? And he said, no, not at all. I've had a, had a good life. I said, I had a good life and uh, I don't want to, be in a lot of pain or suffer a lot but i'm not afraid of death he said so you don't do you live in heaven oh i don't know uh and basically it just it didn't matter to him he wasn't afraid of death he and that's where his faith in god lay mm. is that he thought god is simply the confidence that death is not a terrible thing that's kind of the way he thought of it
0: but i mean i feel like i could have that sort of I mean, by, the, by that definition, then maybe you're, I believe you're, in God, that because... Saying, I, you're I'm going
1: not, that thing of saying, if I describe what I experienced, then I'm trying to get you to experience it also. I don't care if you experience it that way. Hmm. I'm just saying this is the way my father experienced it. Yeah. And so if someone like that, at a, what it basically is a fundamentalist church, and hmm. have no truck with hell, I think there are probably a lot more people out there. I know the people at my church that I go to here, which is though a fairly progressive, liberal, well-educated, Episcopal church in New Haven, Connecticut... I would d- doubt that anybody of us believes in a literal hell. Now, we might say, yes, I can confess that Jesus descended into hell. But what I mean by that is Jesus is always available to people no matter where they are. Um, and so I think there are actually a lot of Christians, at least, who don't believe in hell in a kind of literal sense.
0: My problem with that, not my, not my problem with that, and I appreciate the story about your father, is and I'd appreciate, you know, thank you for sharing that, is the it seems to me like the idea of hell, both within the Christian world and the Muslim world and maybe some others, really is driving a lot of unnecessary evil and suffering in the world in a way that I think other p- types of Christians or Muslims who don't share that belief need to be doing more and are not to call out. I think yeah. that...
1: You know, you don't even have to limit it to hell. You know, we're all in agreement that Christianity, like just about all religions, empirically looked at, you could even say maybe has done more harm in the world than good.
0: You'd, you'd, you'd sign off on that claim, or at least that it's plausible?
1: Yeah. yeah. You take in the Crusades.
0: Yeah. In but the
1: Holocaust.
0: But there's also uh, we, we're going way over time. I'm just going to turn this into two podcasts instead of one. You should you should not interest me this much. Um, not that you shouldn't
1: hang out with this person for three days.
0: Um, the problem though with 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 this is it's not just that there are people I think what a lot of Christians want to say is the Crusades sure there are people who happened to be Christian who did evil things I think I'd want to take my critique one step further in that in some times and places it's specifically because of their Christianity and specifically because of beliefs about the afterlife that they were doing evil things that it was a bright line from belief to action and I
1: Oh, what I deny is that—and this is where atheists get into trouble also, just like a lot of Christians—you um, cannot essentialize Christianity. You can't say there is an identifiable essence of Christianity. That can't be done, and it can't—it shouldn't be done—it's done by believers and it's done by non-believers, but that's the mistake. It's a that's very complex and can go many different directions and say that at its essence— See, I'm just saying Christianity as an identifiable historical social movement has, may well have done more harm in history than good. I'm perfectly willing to say that. I just want to say that if you think that's an argument against Christianity, you're thinking simplistically.
0: No. What I want to say – I mean it's a bit like there's no – I would argue um, to take something I include myself on the inside of. There's no um, identifiable essence to liberalism. There's a set of sort of recurring themes in a Wittgensteinian sort of sense. But there's not a definition, I don't think. Um, What I would argue is there are specific ideas within Christianity that will not be defining of all of it and will not apply to every individual believer, but that might apply to a historical majority of them that tend to have predictably dangerous consequences, and I think hell is chief among them, because if you really believe that by me saying my atheism, if you really believe in the reality of hell, then I can use mere words that can cause your child to suffer for all time until the end of time, I'm a much greater social threat, taken literally, than even, like, a a pedophile or a murderer or something. Because... and, And if you imagine someone who was abusing or killing young children, you would react the same way religious fundamentalists react to atheists, is you would demand that they be locked up. And if the state wouldn't take action, you would. And that is the way a lot of people... In fundamentalist countries, I'm thinking of like Bangladesh, where atheist bloggers are routinely hacked to death, or the Middle Ages where the religious dissenters were burnt. And that's not just people behaving badly, it's people actually behaving very morally and reasonably, given the internal logic of certain ideas.
1: Yeah, but that's no you're you're not making any point that we haven't made about the abortion debate. If you, if you really believe that a two-cell zygote is a full human being in person in every sense, then you would be absolutely crazy not to take any kind of abortion, even a day after pill hmm. as being the full equivalence of murder. It makes perfect sense. And so you don't dispute people like that by saying, um, notice how ra- irrational your belief is, because it's not irrational. It's perfectly rational. It's based on what we believe is a mistaken premise. Mm. And so, what you have to do is talk to people about the premise. Right. So, if I'm talking to someone who, a Christian who believes in hell in the traditional sense, I'm not going to talk to them by saying just things like, well, where is this physically? Mm. And why has science never found it? I could actually say that sort of thing. I'm going to go to something that I would be more fundamental and say, do you believe that it seemed had to have been taught by Jesus of Nazareth, as well as Paul, that the most important thing to say about God is that the meaning of God is love of neighbor, that all the law, any good law is wrapped up in the love of the other. That's fully biblical. It's all the way through the 2000 years of Christianity. If you really believe that, then I want to show you how, what you're saying about hell is not a loving thing to do. And that's just, it's just, that's where you have, you have to first find what's the meaning ground for the person you're talking to. Where do we, what do we share? Because there's no abstract truth anywhere that we can find. We have to start with what we share. So in my book, for example, I don't try to show scientifically that it's irrational to believe in hell. I try to show how it's not consonant with the best understanding of Christian teaching.
0: Which is a a reason a lot of people gave for their atheism. um, If you read someone like James Stuart Mill, the father of John Stuart Mill, his atheism was purely moral. It wasn't based on any like, um, uh, you know, scientifically this, that, or the other. It was based on um, the the contradiction between a loving God and hell. Um mm-hmm. and um James, so my, yeah.
1: my friend Bart Ehrman, he he lost his faith. And he did he doesn't call himself an atheist, he just calls himself an agnostic. Mm-hmm. And most, most recently I heard him on the radio and he was calling himself a know, a Christian agnostic even or something <laughs> like that. But um I think he was reading my book and kind of decided that could be a category. Um, but He basically points to his moving from considering himself a Christian to being an agnostic, when he basically said he couldn't just jive in his own mind, the reality of a good God and the amount of meaningless suffering that exists in the world. Those two things just, he couldn't hold them both in his head at the same time. So, you know, that's, I think that's perfectly reasonable. But the only question then is, it's not necessary. It's not a necessary step. It's a reasonable step. You know, in th- atheism, I've always believed that we, so when I was chair of my department here in Yale, we were hiring a guy from England, from Oxford, who was a philosopher of religion and, and theologian too, but, and he had written a, a couple of books on atheism in the modern world. Um, although he himself is a Roman Catholic, he's one of the Roman Catholic people I was telling you that was heavily influenced on me. And I said to him, you know, we need you to come to Yale, and we need to course we need courses on atheism in the religious studies department and i said there aren't any courses really good courses on atheism and i said i think the most rational place for a course on atheism to be taught is in a religious studies department a secular religious studies department and he was in complete agreement that's been one of our most popular courses for the past 15 years
0: it's something i would have definitely taken in college
1: yeah and I, because i think that As someone who works in the ancient world and can't find an atheist in the ancient world, a true atheist in the modern sense.
0: Hmm. um, We probably probably don't exist until quite recently. I mean, there's like the skeptics in ancient Greece and then – but in the modern sense, no. I I think it's a much more recent phenomenon. What I have always said
1: is that I believe atheism is the invention, is an invention of modern religion
0: what 's really depressing, and I might undercut my own atheist credentials, is I kind of agree with you the modern belief system, and this is what I was talking about with paul is it 's not yes, the concepts and categories we are using come out of religion I think that 's undeniable in in a descriptive and in a moral sense now. There's two ways you can go with that. One is to just say there's not a contradiction here. The fact that we evolved from chimps doesn't mean that we're chimps, right? The other is that I think you have to be a bit more nuanced and you have to say... You have to say that we all exist within a particular time and place historically. And as a sociological descriptive, we're going to believe what we believe about the world because of that time and place. And then... You can't just take the values and categories and concepts that you come to... You can't trust the world you were born in to be right, as I think Mel said. So you have to look at the different things around you, you have to look at the history that got you there, and you have to try and see those other value systems from the inside and see yours and what yours looks like from them. And then in a kind of, like uh, Michael Oakeshott says this, I think, just go between them and try and find some sort of equilibrium, try and find some sort of pathway or point that makes sense. But that's a life's work, and not everybody can do that all the time. But that's that's the best answer I've got to this idea that atheism evolves out of religion and it does because what we preach today is distinct even from something like deism you know it's a different thing um and i I think there's not enough reflection on our history and i think we do need to make an effort to understand what christians really believe and i think that goes both ways i think it means making an effort to understand what you believe But it also means making an effort to understand... Like, take the fundamentalists at their word. They do believe it. Um, I don't know. I don't have a full set of answers on that. But yes, and certainly, 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 when it comes to the, the value side, the moral side, certainly... Um, modern liberalism is an outgrowth of particular theological debates. Something like Locke is a great exemplar here. I think people view that as a political theory. It's, it's Those are the, the political consequences of a religious theory.
1: Yeah, one of the things we've done here at Yale a lot, in fact, some of my PhD students, one of my PhD students wrote his dissertation on this topic, and it's been published and it's gotten a lot of attention, is the I try to teach my students the category of religion that we think of, in at least in the 20th century, didn't exist in the ancient world. It, you just don't have this kind of another category of make, a way to make meaning. What we would call their religions, and in fact, you can't find a Greek or a Latin term from the ancient world that actually looks, that does the work that religion has done in the 20th century. So one of my students actually made that the topic of his dissertation, he said, what would Paul look like if we got rid of the category of religion mm. in the way we use it? And so the first half of that dissertation was published by Yale Press, something in the title, like before religion or something like mm. that. And he basically tried to show how in the ancient Greco-Roman world, religion doesn't exist um, as we talk about it. But it really is. And so one of the things we try to do is say, well, when did religion start? And, he and I and all the people says, well, it first starts in among mainly Protestant scholars in the colonial period when they're discovering before that everybody was kind of, there was Christianity and then there was a subsets of Christianity, which were Judaism, which was kind of taught as a her- heretical version of Christianity mm. and, you know, paganism or Islamic is- Islam, which is also a, a her- heretical part of Christianity. Um, and As they saw different cultures and started to say, well, when they go to South Africa, you know, what are these? They they don't have a religion, they think, the Dutch think. They don't have a religion. So I say, well, well, what what do they? They actually look like they're doing something like liturgies. Well, maybe that's their religion. In other words, we basically say the very idea that there are religions, that there's a a universal category of religion, and then there are religions that are separate subcategories within that universal category, that was a modern invention. And you had, in my view, you had to have that construction first before then you have atheism as a as an option. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise what we call religions—they're just water that the fish were swimming in. They never even thought about it. You know, you don't think about the because you just what we call you know the gods and things—they were just part of their world. That why question it? It's like why question air? Right. Um, And it's when you start questioning the existence of air. And trying to imagine a life without air that's a shift. And what we teach is that you've had to have first the convention of the modern category of religion before you could even have atheism, which is why you don't find true atheists in the ancient world.
0: Yeah, and also there was no – everyone sort of viewed – but, but you also have to have science, right, in the modern sense, in that there was, there was no – Hard line. This idea of the natural and the supernatural probably didn't exist in the ancient world. It was just a different set of causes that people were talking about. I've
1: Um, argued in one book that there was no such thing as the supernatural in the ancient world.
0: But I haven't read that book. But there wasn't, right? I mean, um, when they're talking about, believe
1: gods exist, and everybody believes that some gods exist. If you believe gods exist, or demigods, or heroes, or whatever you want to Hmm. say, they're not human. But they're superior to human on some kind of ontological scale. If you believe those kind of beings exist, and everybody in the ancient world I've ever done find does believe that they exist, oh. then they exist in the cosmos, not outside of the cosmos.
0: Right. And the idea of a hard and fast distinction between the natural and the supernatural world that comes in comparatively later, right? Because Christy- I've
1: my books that you could you could put it in. Different, some people say Aquinas used a Latin term that could be, but I don't think that's a proper. Word. I would argue this, Descartes.
0: Hmm.
1: In fact, I I quote several of his writings where this is the first place you really get a realm of reality that's truly real called the supernatural, but plays by different rules than the natural realm. Yes. Descartes invents that.
0: Because in a way, what the ancients are doing is just science. They're just attributing causes to events and consequences that they see and you know those causes won't stand up to the lights of modern science certainly but like like, why is this there because of this why is this there because of this but it's just on a spectrum with like you know why is this here because you know i'm holding up a pillow because someone made it and then why did we win this war why does the river run and it's just explanations given but there's no category difference between natural and supernatural ones Yeah.
1: I keep trying to, when people ask me to read their manuscripts, if they use the word supernatural, they get a big red pen mark strike through it.
0: But then a lot of this is anachronistic. We're just projecting ideas from the modern world back onto. um, The the first history of political thought I ever did was um, they asked us, what did Aristotle um, say about the state? And the answer immediately that get a buzzer, eh, Aristotle said nothing about the state. That category didn't exist back then. Um, and that's... Well, Another thing I
1: teach my students, I usually save this for the PhD students who are a little more advanced, is that you cannot do history, especially the ancient world, without anachronism. Right. All historiography is anachronism. You just have to decide what is good anachronism and bad anachronism, what is useful anachronism and harmful anachronism. What is misleading anachronism and anachronism that will get you into that world a little bit better with more nuance and a better story of the ancient world. So for example, I talk about, you, Paul's not talking, when Paul talks about the body of Jesus being a spiritual body,
0: Hmm.
1: I say, don't, don't translate that word pneuma as spiritual, because we think of spiritual spirit after Cartesian philosophy Hmm. as an immaterial substance. Paul definitely did not. It's not physical. So Paul didn't believe that at all. He believed the pneumatic body was a physical body. It was just a body made of the stuff of pneuma. And I said, so I'm telling you, if you translate that spiritual body, that's a bad anachronism because it filters everything through a certain kind of modern Christian way of thinking. And that just confuses you because that's not what Paul's doing. But let me use another anachronism. Paul, the, the pneumatic body was, for Paul would be, as I said earlier, uh, if we can imagine a body that's made purely of electricity and oxygen, It still would be physical, even in our world, but it's very different from a flesh and blood body. So I said, when I imagine Paul thinking about the pneumatic body, I say, well, if we could imagine a body that was purely energy and oxygen, electricity and oxygen, that's probably the closest we can get to thinking what Paul thought of. That's anachronism.
0: Right but it's a better anachronism. Yeah, cuz the the rea- this is what makes this sort of a, a a book I could write of like Christianity for atheists and the tagline would be like more interesting than <laughs> who you would might want think. To read it? <laughs> I know. But like the, the 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 weird thing is, do you ever have to take a step back? I mean, I know you're a believing Christian, but then there's like the Sunday school version. And then when you and, and the Sunday school version is weird enough that there was this guy who rose from the dead and you know, was a carpenter of all things, right? But then the actual version, like what the people who saw the resurrected Christ were claiming to have seen, is weirder still, right? Do you ever just have this feeling of how bizarre this be- this set of documents and claims is?
1: That's why. That's why I spent a life studying it. This is why I was saying about Paul. I wouldn't want to be Paul's friend. What do you make but of I Paul? A- I find I find it fascinating to try to crawl inside his head.
0: Do you think we can get in po- I feel sometimes I spent a whole year doing Plato once. I fall on the other side, I like Plato, but like there's times where I feel like I've got inside the guy's head. Um and then he says something about, and then of course we'll have to execute all the young children and the poets, and you sort of think, okay, you know, I don't and he's lost me again. Um <laughs> But do you feel like because it's not like Jesus? I feel like Jesus, you can have a construction, you can have a theology, but that that personality is lost to us. Whereas well, yes. Paul, there's there's a person there that that through all the language that we don't, and categories and concepts that we're not using, there's something forceful and fighty and arrogant and and very charismatic about paul that seems to shine through and connect do you ever feel like you know the guy uh sometimes but then
1: i again it's like my i've changed my mind so many times about what i think about paul over my career so you know sure there are times when i feel like that I, I i have a sense of his personality but then also i'm a good enough critical historian that i say you realize this is your construction of paul right you just you're you're comfortable with a construction that you yourself made
0: right, and there is this perennially debated question, which I think the only honest answer is that you can't of to what extent can you really go back and get to the point where you're in some way connecting and having some sort of mind merge across the centuries and really getting into their head, and you 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 forever feel like you're doing it, and it feels great mm-hmm. but then maybe there's just a hard, almost just like atheistic if I can use the reality, which is you're not. And it's just <laughs> stuff that happens in your head.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. That was a while. Thank you for thank you for that conversation.
1: You're welcome. Like I say, find yourself in New Haven, come by and see me. We can do all this in person
0: if I'm in town, I absolutely will. I really appreciated that. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, if you're finding it interesting or thought-provoking or valuable, then we suggest a donation of $2 per episode. That's really easy to set up. We have a Patreon page now. And since we launched this feature last week, we've seen our first few donors, which is incredible. I really want to just thank everyone who took the time to chip in a couple of bucks That is really great. I'm very grateful to everyone who did that, thank you. We've also seen some good growth in our overall listening numbers. We've seen a big spike in the last week. So big thank you to everyone who shared the show or shared one of our updates on social media or anything like that. And if you do want to support the show but can't manage a donation, then sharing it is a really great way to do that as well. So thank you for everyone who's been doing that. If you want to sponsor us, then it's really easy to do. We set up a Patreon page, links to that, as well as to subscribe and follow on iTunes, on YouTube, on Facebook or Twitter. Twitter's actually where I do most of my business these days. If you want to get minute-to-minute updates of the show, follow us on Twitter. The links to all of that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com politicalphilosophypodcast.com so check that out please do support if you can and yeah until next time I'll just leave by saying I'm really genuinely grateful and sometimes I have to pinch myself a bit that it's really taking off this much but I'm really grateful for everyone who's supported us on Patreon and everyone who's helped get the show out there by sharing so Thank you. Until next week.